0: Hello, and welcome back to Open Door Philanthropy. I'm your host, Dave Moss, founder of The Unfunded List, and the host of this podcast. Thanks for listening. We are interviewing Emily Rasmussen. Rasmussen?
1: That's it.
0: I've pronounced it correctly. <laughs> one for one so far. And we're going to dive into it, learn a little bit more about Emily. Where did you grow up, and what was your childhood like?
1: Uh, thank you for having me, Dave. Um, to get started, I grew up in Northern California in the mountains, uh, a small town called Sierra City. About a hundred people, I believe. Um, and... One hundred people. One hundred people. And actually, to Sierra be fair... Sierra City? Sierra City, Northern California. And honestly, we actually grew up five miles away from Sierra City, further, <laughs> removed. But that's the nearest town, so... It has hundred people
0: and it's called a city?
1: That's correct.
0: Did it used to be bigger?
1: Uh, it was larger during the gold rush time. So yes, it's it a was a boom town. Point. I At some point it must have been booming. I'm not sur- sure what booming for Sierra City meant, but, uh, but
0: they went there for the gold rush. Yes Very cool. Yeah, and what did you do there? Did you climb those mountains?
1: we did a lot of hiking and fishing and swimming in the lakes and all of that good stuff, but uh yeah, grew up there, homeschooled. My parents built a log cabin in the mountains to to raise their two kids, and uh, so my brother and I grew up with a pretty wonderful outdoorsy life up there.
0: And you were homeschooled from the start.
1: No, uh, we actually we went to school through third grade, no, through sixth grade. Excuse me, and then we were homeschooled
0: onward. So for so that for me that would have been junior high school and high school.
1: That's right, seventh grade. Yeah, I think for most people, middle school, high school.
0: And so that was your parents. Yes. Um, all right. Is that um, so? We have some homeschooling in Maine. Mm-hmm. That and I had some friends who did that. I imagine it's different in California. Was there <laughs> a certain like, was there a curriculum or a program your parents were following, like what the. Most of the folks I know who were homeschooled, it was like just evangelical Mm. um, or Baptist homeschooling. um, Extremely religious. Right. Is that that what you were doing?
1: No. No. Um, So our form of homeschooling was what my mom called unschooling, which meant there was no formal training. I am familiar with unschooling. (laughs) Oh, yes. Okay. I
0: used to work at the National Youth Rights Association. Okay. And several times we defended uh, students' and parents' rights to unschool or non-school or...
1: Wonderful. Well, that's we were in California where that was allowed. Other states, uh, not so much. And my mom was a librarian, and so her approach to what would she you know about education? Well, all she did was bring home <laughs> books. She said, "What are you interested in?" She'd go to what, the library. What qualifies her to?
0: That's very cool. Yeah. at a public library.
1: Yes, at a public
0: library. Was it a Carnegie Library?
1: It was. I am not sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Probably, I guess he built thirty five hundred. So. He built thirty five hundred libraries.
1: Yes, she's a big fan. Um, the library that she worked at up there was the tiny Sierra City Library. Remember, a town of a hundred people. So, um, I'm not quite sure how that one was established, uh, but she went on to work at many libraries after that as well. Uh,
0: very cool. And so, uh, eventually, you you went to college after your homeschooling, right? Do you get a diploma? The state of California, at some point, accredited you?
1: I did get my GED, um, and I primarily went that route because I also became uh, involved in ballet. And so before going on to undergrad and uh, going to college, I spent several years as a professional ballet dancer. I lived in Seattle and danced with Pacific Northwest Ballet there.
0: Very good. Um, When did you start ballet? I
1: was about 11, I think right, right around the time we started homeschooling was when I was actually able to start training because we were able to get into town soon enough for classes where when I was in school, we weren't able to make that that trip. So
0: Do you suppose that the unschooling model afforded you more time than a normally schooled student would have to practice your dance? Absolutely. And that's why you were able to, you said you were a professional? Yes. Do you still dance?
1: I do. I took class last weekend.
0: Oh, you took class
1: Took class
0: so you're taking classes you were a professional and you're still taking oh ballerinas just take keep taking classes is it ballerina or is it ballet dancer now Uh, I've heard people say ballet dancer lately
1: yes I I would say that's more typically used than ballerina um so I did I
0: took three years of ballet okay I was a theater major and my um, uh, one of my professors thought it would improve my stage presence did it Yeah, he was yes Uh, some directors will use ballet terms like when they're doing their blocking and stuff, and mm-hmm. I remember I did to I do a show and the, the the guy kept telling me like to stand in third position, fifth position. And at one point, <laughs> he said, "Can you do arabesque?" And I was like, "You listen, man, you need to start speaking English." <laughs> My
1: French is not so good.
0: That um, I knew I actually knew what arabesque meant, but I was like, I had, I think I don't think he wants me to do that. <laughs> I can now do. This is a podcast. I would do it for the folks listening, but I can do arabesque still, and I can do. Well, of, I'm here. Ballet. I can take a photo and we can share it with the audience. No, it's not later. anything that anyone wants, <laughs> okay. wants. Honestly, I think I'm, I'm a little bit too heavy to be doing that kind of stuff these days. Oh. Which is something that when I was taking ballet, the ballet instructors reminded me of on like a regular basis.
1: They are good at that. Yeah, they're pretty good at breaking people down traditionally. Um, there's been a kind of a culture of that in ballet that has not been super healthy. Uh, but well, I think a lot of that's changing now, which has been really great to. So I went to
0: Dickinson College, where they have Central Pennsylvania Youth Ballet. Yes, as I understand, fantastic. it's one of the better School. ballet schools. Absolutely. And I, my like, when I took intro or whatever, it was so girls come from all over the world. There were girls from Russia mm-hmm. in Central Pennsylvania taking ballet there, and I was in a class with like twelve, thirteen-year-old girls,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and um, watching the instructor like tell them they were too heavy, and I'm like, she's the size of my forearm
1: <laughs> it's a whole other level yeah
0: um and then there was also I, my pants were never tight enough mm. it's a whole <laughs> like thing i'm just trying to get some credits in the theater department okay i don't know why we're talking about my pants this often. <laughs> they need to see the lines in yeah. order to judge if you're doing the positions correctly that's yeah there's a told. whole
1: culture and a whole aesthetic and all of this that's associated with it that is not in and of itself negative, but um, you know, the the execution of it and the education around it uh, is not always Do the with care.
0: Uh, there's an awful lot of, not an awful lot, but there's some discussion of toxicity mm-hmm. in the world today. It's a, a thing that people are, there's the toxic masculinity and um, toxic culture and, and lots of them. The word toxic will come up a lot. Mm-hmm. Right? People get canceled for being toxic, mm. right? Uh, I think ballet—we've both experienced some toxic stuff in it. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. I think we would both agree you shouldn't cancel it over that. We've reviewed at unfunded list lots of proposals from newer dance companies oh, trying great. to be more inclusive and move past this. Mm-hmm. As far and I've seen overweight ballet dancers do incredible performances. Mm-hmm. There's really no reason for what our instructors were telling us i don't think there's a very specific and narrow type of dance that is not uh, accessible to a lot of people yeah absolutely. Uh, you yeah. are very thin <laughs> still
1: okay thank you i think that's
0: <laughs> living in new york i've lost like 10 pounds since i
1: yeah there's a lot of running around <laughs> and i live up a walk up so i get, get to sit that every and day yeah
0: you know, <laughs> lots of st- you go there's stairs for, for a city with a lot of elevators there's also a lot of stairs yes
1: and the elevators are always <laughs> positioned somewhere out of reach too mm. too much of a pain to get to so so um,
0: how did you learn about giving mm. was the first time like was the first time you learned about giving things
1: giving things beyond giving, giving money just giving um you know, I, my mom as a, like when she started at the library, for example, she was a volunteer. We, so she used to talk about volunteering and, and, um, would work at, uh, uh not just at the library, but would find other ways to do that. Whether if we were in a small community, right? So there would be these community events, for example, that would raise money for the local fill in the blank and so she would always volunteer to go help with the pancake breakfast or the whatever the event was. So I think it was just very much a something that was modeled for us through action and through that kind of volunteering more than money. We didn't have money growing up.
0: Well, most children don't have money even if their parents have money. They exactly. Don't. So usually your first experience with giving is something else. Right. I asked most folks who come on the show and it's sharing their toy. Or mm-hmm. like you just said, volunteering. Did you volunteer at the pancake breakfast? I remember volunteering, yeah.
1: We volunteered at the library, helped out there. And then my grandmother also lived in the area, and she would be involved in things and have us volunteer also. Um, so I remember doing that. Again, not really on the money side of things, but that was actually an interesting experience for me because um, my first memory of giving money was also as a, as a kid, but maybe... I don't know six or eight or something like this, and I remember getting a mailer from uh, I believe it was the the AWCA, and um,
0: the AWCA.
1: Is that, uh, sorry, the ASPCA. ASPCA. <laughs> the ASPCA. American Society for the Prevention
0: of Cruelty against <laughs> animals. To animals,
1: exactly, and uh, I had never heard of them before, and I was very moved by this mailer. And somehow, maybe it probably didn't come to me, to be honest. It probably went to my mother or my grandmother, probably whoever had it was. Pictures
0: of pets in it yes of looking, course. Sad.
1: looking very sad and I was very moved as a young child um, and I actually went on at 11 to become a vegetarian um, from all of this but uh, initially it was about funding right they were asking for money and I remember taking my coins they literally had nickels and dimes maybe I had a quarter or two in there and putting it in this little envelope and mailing it um, and that was my first experience. So it really wasn't through family giving, and I actually remember a healthy skepticism around giving uh, in my family beyond volunteering and doing things directly in the community. Um, There's more of a skepticism of sending your money away to a nonprofit. Uh, so that was kind of an interesting thing for me to to unpack a bit as I got more involved in that space over time.
0: Sending your money away to a like outside of the community nonprofit. That's right. Um, I think that's quite common. A lot of Giving is local. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, uh, for as we were talking before the show, uh, for a lot of time, for a long time, giving was primarily organized through religious institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, in the city, it, uh, um, in what was it, Sierra City? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are, are, is there much religion there? They have a church for some. the hundred folks. Yep. Do they all go to the same church?
1: I can't say for sure. I did not go to church. You didn't go to any of them? I did not. But uh, but there is a church in Sierra City, and there's another town another 10 or 12 miles away called Downeyville, which was a larger town that had the school that we did go to for a while. And that town had a couple of churches, a Catholic church and another um, Christian church as well. Maybe, maybe more, but at least those two that I know of. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so I mean uh, even even for those of us so I grew up in a Catholic town but I was not Catholic mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you get to be immune from Catholic traditional Catholic values or because everybody around you is thinking and talking about them often mm-hmm. and so like was there what effect did religiosity have on you as a as a child growing up
1: Well, my family was not religious, as I mentioned, so we did not go to church. Uh, And there wasn't a whole lot of conversation about church or faith, religion that I remember much of. Um, I did have one friend, I recall, whose mother was very religious, and so when I would go over to her home, there was a lot more conversation about it. Mm. Um, So I guess my, my take on it was just that it was something interesting, but it was not something that I internalized or fully I don't know understood I guess
0: in any in any way Um, for many folks the church is a very welcoming place
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, I think folks in my hometown might might say that the Catholic church they go to is like where they feel the most welcome
2: Mm.
0: Uh, and one of the things I think a lot of folks don't realize is that like for me who's also from that town that would probably be the place I would feel the least welcome in my hometown interesting because I'm it's it's a in, is a community within the community
2: yeah.
0: that gets to that that gets to exclude community members. Mm. Like every like communities should be able to exclude people, right? <laughs> it's <laughs> sort of the nature of having a community. Yeah. But you're when you've got communities that exclude people who are in your community, mm. right? I that, that's where I think trouble starts. And that's so. where I think many Americans particularly our age have a negative view of religion. Mm. And, and for me, that's why it is.
1: That's interesting. And I, I will say that I remember going into the church often and it being a very welcoming place because there were, for example, the local theater group would perform in the church. And so it felt like very much a community space. And I would think I was too young to really understand faith and all of the implications around it. Um, but my, my exposure to it in those brief you know those few times was very positive just as far as it being a community space but uh
0: yeah they are often involved in social change work Mm -hmm. even sometimes social justice work for Mm -hmm. all i will criticize the catholic church because i grew up surrounded by them and i think i've earned the right but they (laughs) have also done an awful lot of good stuff for social justice in my community and many others Mm -hmm. absolutely um and it's uh, one of the things that i find difficult about it is um Currently, they are on the flick. We have a small homelessness problem in Waterville, Maine, where mm. I live, compared to New York City, where I am right now. Uh, honestly, it's it's actually similarly visible. Like our ten homeless people are about as visible as whatever the percentage is here. Mm. Right, We're, the folks from Waterville are used to there being zero homeless folks, and now there are ten. I don't know. I haven't done a head count, um, but they have a little. Um, they have their tents set up down by the river, and a lot of folks are concerned. And it is that we have a goodwill. Mm-hmm. and a habitat for humanity um both located both have chapters in waterville mm-hmm. and as far as i can tell doing great great chapters of two great organizations you do have a lot of the catholics that that will not engage with those two organizations and are instead trying to help the the homeless only through their church
2: mm-hmm.
0: which is, is something that i find very frustrating i want i also would like to help on certain issues in this town and i and I, I can do so through goodwill or have a day for humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not, I can't really go to the Catholic church and participate in it that way. And they, there, <laughs> there are even some churches that are competitive with each other. Don't bring your donations to that church, bring your donations to this church. And it's just I, that stuff they need to keep their membership up. They need lots of other things. They want it they're, they're thinking existentially
2: mm-hmm. uh, and, they,
0: and while also trying to help their community. But the fact that they are, you know, Exclusive in certain ways makes it difficult to, to accomplish that social change I've found. Mm. I warned yes. you before that I sometimes go on tangents
2: <laughs> Yeah.
0: Do you have homeless in Sierra City? It's probably warmer in the winter.
1: I Can say I have never seen Someone that I recognized as a person experiencing homelessness in Sierra City mm. doesn't mean that they have not been there um,
0: Right, yes, it's not always as visible as mm-hmm. Um, It's
1: also a pretty. It is a mountain town. It's a pretty difficult place to be homeless. Um, Beyond the summer, there are about two months where it's lovely.
0: Everywhere in Maine is pretty rough. Mm. That's one of the reasons why I think people are so concerned with because winter is coming up, Mm -hmm. um, and we don't always have enough warming shelters. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, we are moving through your life. Uh, Eventually, you like you completed your homeschooling, and you have your GED. And you're, you're leaving the Sierra... You left the Sierra City area to go to college. Where do you go to college?
1: Well, I left first to train for, for ballet. So right. I went to train actually in New York for a summer, in San Francisco for a summer, and then Seattle. And then ultimately moved to Seattle when I was 17, uh, full-time to train with the Pacific Northwest Ballet and dance there for a couple... Two or three
0: years. And then... So at some point, you, you stopped dancing and went to college?
1: Yeah. So then uh, what happened was I ended up having an injury, had to have surgery. So that took me out of dance for a while. Right around that time, 9-11 happened. And that really, just as especially going through that surgery and having more time, just had me thinking about other things going on in the world and other things I might want to do with my life. And I always felt that I wanted to go to college at some point but at least at that point in time in the ballet world it was very difficult to do those two things simultaneously uh, and it was even kind of frowned upon if you were going to dance or going to college or doing something outside of ballet then you weren't serious enough about ballet so uh it felt very much like you had to be all in and that moment freed me up to explore some other things and while i would have i think imagine myself being in the ballet world for quite a bit longer before making that transition, this all expedited it. So ended up applying to some colleges during that time as well as getting back in shape and doing some, some auditions and ultimately got accepted to Occidental College where I was really excited because they had an internship program with the United Nations. And at least at that time, it was the only internship program, undergraduate internship program with the UN that I was aware of. So I was um, excited to, to go there to be able to participate in that
0: um yeah i think um those sorts of uh, internship or experiential programs at colleges have been growing quite a bit mm-hmm. s- or since we went to school mm-hmm. which is um, sometimes i think i like just graduated and then i do the math out and realize that it was a very long time ago <laughs> yeah. um there were you could get maybe an internship or something like that, but it does seemed to me that like almost every school now has like vast levels of program mm-hmm. and are talking about maybe social change or social entrepreneurship I remember when I first moved to DC GW like the first year I was there they founded the, the first department of social entrepreneurship oh, of any okay. like undergrad program and it was mostly because students were like I want we are I'm interested in this you need to have something called yeah you need to use the word social entrepreneurship in something
2: yeah
0: and now almost all of them are using that word in something yeah um, the uh, so it's very interesting to me. Right. I when I went to Dickinson College, I wanted to have a. I think a lot of folks at the time. I went in two thousand, so I was in college for 9-11. Um, I was mostly just interested in a typical college experience.
2: Mm-hmm. I wanted
0: to have a. I wanted to go to college. They, they, one. My parents were college professors, so I was obviously good, like there was no discussion <laughs> of no not question. going. Um, and like I, I grew up in Waterville, where Colby College is, so I got to see that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go to a college like that. That was my main. <laughs> really, my main driver. Uh, it's interesting, and, and I wasn't thinking about my career, the UN, or anything like that. I knew I was, you know, I figured I was talented, and I would someday get a job somewhere. I was smart enough that somebody would want to hire me. And I just needed to do. I was going to have the opportunity to go to college for four years and have some fun. Hmm. Um, going because you're interested in a UN internship. Uh, is seems mature.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I was also a little bit older because I'd been dancing for a while, right? So I remember starting school and my peers from an age perspective were all seniors when I was a freshman. Um, So I I think I did go in with quite a bit more life experience and more focus on what I wanted to get out of
0: my time there. And how was the, did you do the UN internship? I did, yeah. (laughs) And how, what did they, what did they have you do?
1: It was great. I ended up interning with the Finnish mission to the United Nations um, and it was during the time that the Finnish, that Finland had the presidency of the EU. So they basically were overwhelmed with with the work of that. I think, I, I can't quite recall, but I believe they, they rotate this presidency uh, between the countries. I can't remember the
0: guy's name. He had a great name. Like the Finnish... Okay, (laughs) but it was
1: an exciting time because they had so much going on and they basically doubled their capacity. They had desks in the hallways and just so much activity going on. There was a lot to lean into. And um, it was also around the time that Muhammad Yunus was being recognized for his work with microfinance. And so for me, that uh, tied into my broader focus on economic development and international affairs. And so I spent a lot of time working on those those areas there and that hmm. ultimately led to my next phase of getting involved in the microfinance space
0: we are uh coincidentally one of the proposals we are reviewing this round was submitted to the finnish embassy mm. in Adaba. oh which is and i'm i was just like trying to th- i'm like i don't know anything about any of that <laughs> <laughs>
1: well we should chat i'll be let's... able i'll be able to get
0: this for, like i have volunteers and some of them will know about it but like i'm yeah. not I don't, I don't know about embassies. I don't. <laughs> it is. Uh, uh, um, it's fun for we have a, a, a very diverse batch of proposals we're reviewing this round, which um, is very interesting. And I imagine that the UN has like the, so. A lot. Some of these folks applied actually to the UN from this round as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you go to a place like the UN, you start you you get exposure to all kinds of stuff that you might never think about, like the Finnish government funding in Ethiopia.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like that's it. it's and especially as an American to think about that. <laughs> they're how they're doing this without us. They're just <laughs> going about the their diplomacy and <laughs> giving grants and stuff. But actually, the uh, the Scandinavian countries are give a, a fairly good uh, percentage um, mm-hmm. in foreign aid. I know there's um, Noraid um, in Norway, and I forget what the Finnish agency is. Uh, but that must have been very cool. It was a great um, experience, yeah. So when you were and then and then an after Occidental, you went to um, Harvard, right? I did. Was well, that right I worked. Away or no,
1: I I worked, worked for a few years. So I moved to. During my senior year in undergrad, I did a, a senior thesis on microfinance and arts and culture in India. And so for that work, I spent about ten days in India, going to visit different microfinance organizations and uh, had a really interesting, challenging, but also enjoyable educational experience there. And ultimately, uh, out of that was offered a position at one of these microfinance institutions after I graduated. So I moved to India a couple months after graduating and spent over two years, I think about two and a half years in India uh, working in microfinance based out of uh, New Delhi area, but a lot of the work that we were doing was in the rural northeast. So, spent a lot of time in the smaller villages in those areas. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great experience.
0: For those who may not know, and this might include me. What is microfinance?
1: Mm. Microfinance is giving small, very dollar... small,
0: very tiny finance.
1: <laughs> Micro, you might say. Little.
0: <laughs> Micro means one one thousandth. So you you finance one one thousandth of the program
1: not exactly but you know you could it, maybe there is some version of that um that there are many different models i of microfinance, think you should fund the full program right personally. Okay. well you know if the program only requires five dollars then maybe that's microfinance it's the full program but it's a micro amount of funding i think that's typically in the microfinance world the idea was so muhammad Yunus is really considered the godfather of microfinance i've um, heard of him great So Grameen Bank, he founded in Bangladesh, and this really pioneered this movement. And he was a a professor himself, I believe, and had started this just experiment on his own where he would give money to people in communities that needed it um, and would say, well, I'll give money to someone else once this money is repaid. And so I I won't get into the specifics because I, I, I don't know all the details around it, but he really just started testing this concept of, all these people in these communities that could use financing, whether it's to address an immediate need, a healthcare issue or something that comes up or invest in their small local business, a lot of these people were not considered bankable by the traditional banking industry. They didn't have bank accounts. They couldn't even get to a bank in some cases. So they didn't have access to finance. Uh, Kind of middlemen industries had popped up of course, but often those were prohibitively expensive um, to where if you took any kind of financing from them, it could completely destroy you economically. And so he started testing this concept of, instead of having uh, financial capital or some of the, or, or, um, uh, collateral, excuse me, or some of the other types of ways that banks would make loans to people because they had some way of, of um, ensuring that it would be repaid, he said, what if we thought about social, Capital and social collateral as a way to give people loans and say hey if you put together a self-help group of women of 20 women We'll give a loan to one of them And once she repays it then the next woman in the group can get a loan And in that way other people in the group are incentivized to encourage that woman to pay back her loan so that they can also get a loan Um, and so anyway that started this whole new movement of how we can think about alternative forms of of collateral and getting funding to to communities that typically wouldn't have access to it otherwise.
0: Uh, thank you for the explanation. Something that has confused me for a long time, um, and, and I'm, I remain confused. It's one of the reasons I started Unfunded List. Maybe someday I would figure it out. <laughs> there are many things that particularly, so like if you go to an area of the world where there is a lot of need, right, or, or what I would call an unfunded topic, right? So you, this, this could be pretty much anything. This could be like black. Uh, women-owned businesses in the US don't get the funding that they need uh, Indigenous groups in the US and abroad. Actually, one of the things that's, that's interesting to me is that US foundations fund more To indigenous groups abroad than to indigenous groups in the US
1: really? Wow.
0: Uh, and a lot of that has to do with what you were talking about. No bank account mm. not the correct 501c3 paperwork or mm-hmm. whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and so my grandmother was a somewhat of a philanthropist and one of the things that she would say is like giving money is not difficult You can you give the money to them and then they have it <laughs> um, That when she was giving it was, it was usually handing or mailing a check like a very a very clear-cut process that she understood mm-hmm. um, These days money goes Sometimes the donor hands you a check
2: mm-hmm. That hasn't
0: happened to me as a fundraiser in quite some time Sometimes they come in the mail and who knows if they arrive at all. Mm-hmm. Other times you need to like do, you need to get onto their platform and get signed up. Unfunded list is on many different platforms in order to be able to receive mm-hmm. donations from certain folks, right? And I think for a very long time we've been talking about like getting money to the folks who need it as though it's very difficult.
2: Yeah.
0: Right. So these, and and, and but there is such a thing as financing and banking and, and for a very long time investing in small businesses Community-based small businesses has been a, a winning bet for investors. Mm-hmm. So the folk and that and as everything I've read about microfinance says that that's true mm-hmm. abroad as well.
2: Yeah, <laughs> So
0: why isn't this just a solution for tri- for traditional banking to make traditional loans to to businesses in a way that has been working and growing economies around the world for hundreds of years?
1: Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting is that this this initial model that he pioneered, Muhammad Yunus pioneered, has gone on to to inspire many other models, and including many banks that have gotten into this space. Um, And I think to varying levels of um, what's the word I'm looking for Uh, success, I guess, uh, depending upon how you look at success. So there are some that would say uh, traditional banking sectors they've gotten into this microfinance movement. have tried to extract too much value. And so where Muhammad Yunus was running a nonprofit and his approach was very charitable, there were others who came into the sector that said, well, actually, there's, there is there an opportunity here to charge something and this there is expenses. We scale this up and we build a team. We were talking about overhead earlier, right? There's just real overhead expense for us to administer a program like this. This can be a sustainable program. And if we demonstrate that, then that's going to inspire more of these programs across the country, around the world. And ultimately, that's going to be better. That's going to help many more communities. And so I think there is a push toward that direction and then some who um, others would say push that too far and we're trying to extract much more value than they should have um regardless i think it really did inspire a lot of these banks to get into that space and and you know i think in a way that's what the nonprofit sector is here to do right is to like run these experiments and show what's possible and whether it's a kind of company or the government then learning from that and adopting that and helping to scale that uh, that is ultimately i think the hope for a lot of these types of programs
0: has the since uh Una started his work with grameen and mm-hmm. I shared I once they were there They have an office in DC and I shared a building with them and I would occasionally see him <laughs> But I've never actually met him I saw him in the lobby a few times mm-hmm. um, Has there been an increase in the amount of funding that goes to typical grameen recipients?
1: I cannot speak to their metrics at this point unfortunately i'm sure. not up to it up to speed on everything on on the movement more generally um since i've been out of it for
0: sure so we'll i'll ask now. a slightly different version so like i said one of the things i'm confused about is you, you see a lot of folks talking you've there are many problems that have been identified in philanthropy long ago mm-hmm. and i and i all i watch year after year people just continue to talk about the problems and some of them like so for instance very small percentage goes to this is the one that, that continuously confuses me. We've been talking about the fact that funding doesn't go to Black and Brown leaders in the U.S. for a very long time,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and the percentage is not going up.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The talk does not translate to it going up, and in fact, there are programs focused on. There's programs where you have to be <laughs> a Black leader to apply, mm-hmm. which is not something that existed all that long ago, and that's and even with those programs in existence, <laughs> the percentage is still not going up. And I, yeah. I remain, I it's. One of the reasons why I hesitate to say I'm an expert on philanthropy because I can't—I'm bewildered by it. <laughs> Give them more money,
2: right?
0: And they're it's like, "Well, easy. we can't. It's hard to." F- I, 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 do you need a list? <laughs> I've reviewed well over a thousand proposals since 2015. Many of them were written by really great Black and Brown leaders who have not gotten a grant from anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even you know, I recently saw the head of Ford Foundation giving a talk. Himself grew up poor, Black, and gay, and has a focus on trying to increase that percentage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the talk, he admitted that he'd, in his time there at Ford, they have not increased that percentage. And so, and, and again, I don't know. <laughs> Why? Uh, the reason, I'm not trying. I'm Sometimes with my tangents, I have like a theory or like, I think I know what I'm talking about here, mm-hmm. but I really don't know. And I've never been to India. I've never done microfinance work. I've
2: mm-hmm. never
0: been into sort of this stuff. So, I, uh, and um, you know, we, we have some other things that we can get into as we go along with the questions here. Um, but like. Is it just really is, is philanthropy just really hard to make change in, or like is systemic inequality too difficult to encounter? Because uh, again, to me, this seems simple. Right. You, you, you're why are you you're funding the wrong things in many cases? And you just need to stop and fund the right things.
1: Right. Well, especially when you hear someone like the head of the Ford Foundation saying this is a goal. And it's- Okay, well, you have lots of money. You could, <laughs> you could change the funding I was
0: dynamic there saying, right I'm there. Like, <laughs> I, and I, I, his, on, I, I don't want to give the guy a hard time. Um, no, and they have their doing own structure. A lot structure. better than a lot of other yeah. folks. And yeah. I, I appreciate that he's admitting um, that they couldn't do it. And there are actually yeah. a lot more. When I started on funding list, I don't think he was the head because uh, I tried to call them and ask how many because they used to accept full length mm-hmm. proposals from mm-hmm. anybody. They don't now. You now it's like a letter of inquiry. It's only like. Mm-hmm. One, two short questions, it's, it's a lot less time. Mm-hmm. There used to be like a full 40 hours to write grant proposal that you could send in there. It was the largest open process in the world. Wow. And I tried to get information on how many they received and they would not tell me. Because it was, an, I'm sure, an embarrassingly Massive. high number. Yeah. Of, and if you were to take do the math on it, mm-hmm. 40 hours times the 40,000 proposals would be my guess. Yeah. Um, similar programs you compare it to. Mm-hmm. You start paying the minimum wage to write those proposals. Mm-hmm. It's actually more money than the Ford Foundation gives away every year. Wow. And there's some other programs, like Echoing Green, you may have heard of. Yeah, of course. They don't actually give that much money away every year. Right. And they get ten they're getting applications in the tens of thousands. Yeah. I've 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 done it myself a few times. I'm yeah. Twice I'm, rejected me as Echoing well. Green. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can join you on that list. <laughs> I wrote I wrote a
0: blog post several years ago. I interviewed a lot of I interviewed people who had been successful who had been denied by Equin Green, but Successful with their ventures, uh-huh. which because because it's most people, it's the it's ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the people who apply to Equin Green, uh-huh. and again pay minimum wage to the people for the just the time it took them to write the proposal, mm-hmm. and it would exceed. It's called net granting. It's what folks call the math on that, hmm. and there are many programs that are actually net negatives as That's a result. And to, it's and a big the administrative difficulty. There is, I think, a suggestion as to why perhaps. Funding is not increasing to some of these groups.
1: Right, I think that's right. We're, we're hamstrung a bit by the, the infrastructure that we have. And a lot of these older institutions as well um, have been set up in certain ways that precludes those people who are running them now, right? And so you're trying to move a much larger ship and things take longer, but ultimately over time, I think the idea, the goal, the hope is that there will be a much bigger impact and, and there will be a bigger shift of funding. Uh, but it is also one of the reasons why some of these alternative models of funding, I, I'm obviously, uh, I work in the giving circle space and, and most giving circles don't ask for applications. They try to not even engage with the nonprofit until they're telling the nonprofit they have money for them. And that's part of it that's because
0: every giving circle I've been involved with did ask for yeah. applications. That's interesting for me to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say the application part of it, um, the, some of the great grapevine materials I read, to, did you use the word administrative burden, which I appreciate. Mm. It's a term I use a lot. Mm-hmm. The fundamental problem with philanthropy is the administrative burden. It's wonderful and nice to think about giving the money away. And when you actually start to do it, you realize this is work. This is yeah. school work. Yeah. There's spreadsheets and budgets and stuff to read yeah. and things to learn and look up and, yeah. and uh, numbers to double check. And it's work. And it takes a long time. I, program officers who work at foundations are some of the hardest working people I know. Agreed. They have to read a lot of different mm-hmm. programs, most of them they have to turn down. Uh, and they have to do so with diligence. Um, usually if they if you're doing it professionally, mm-hmm. right? It's not even your own opinion. You have to follow like some sort of matrix or rubric
2: mm-hmm. that's
0: been explained to you. Right? right. Very difficult. Very difficult work that, that often goes unappreciated. But right, not right now. I appreciate you. <laughs> program. Even when you reject my grants.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's I, a tough I position to be in. I appreciate the time that you
0: have put into it. <laughs> And certainly, I wouldn't blame a program officer for rejecting my grant. <laughs> uh, they're doing their jobs. Um, so um, we've been bouncing around a little bit. I want to. I want uh, a couple more questions about education. We have. We, I, I've been privileged to interview many Harvard graduates on the program. My uncle, like you, has an MBA from Harvard, and he did well with it. Great. <laughs> sort of. Not as well as my mother.
1: <laughs> but who's counting? <laughs> he does not listen to the
0: podcast, so I can get away with that kind of stuff. Um, so, you obviously were interested in ballet in, during your high school years. Mm-hmm. Um, once you got to school, what were, you, what were you interested in studying? What sort of classes? And did you major in the arts? I did in not. Undergrad?
1: No, I was actually very clear that for me, going to college was not business. pursuing the arts. Well, it wasn't business. You mean, well, in business school, yes, it was business. <laughs> I just meant generally like
0: business. I didn't um, necessarily mean you were majoring in business or anything, but you were you were taking a, I guess, arts, I, I don't know, arts are business and serious. So uh, I'm trying to think of what's a, what's a, like you had a non-artistic. <laughs> yes. I wanted to pursue <laughs> academics. Practical, practical yes. I guess.
1: I felt that I pursued ballet, and I, that was my passion in the art world. And if I wasn't going to pursue that seriously, which meant through the the apprenticeship model with the company in that channel, then I wasn't going to go to college for it, certainly. There was nothing in college was going to teach me about ballet, It was my feeling. Um, now, there are certainly people that go to college to study ballet, but it's just a very different model from the one that I had bought into and... and Wanted to pursue. So when I made the change to go to college, it had nothing to do with the arts. It had everything to do with international relations and ultimately, exactly, and ultimately the um, economic development. I got into that side of things as well through that interest in microfinance. And to your point earlier, social entrepreneurship. I remember uh, in college discovering Ashoka and reading a book. I believe it was something about, or maybe even called, The Seed of Discontent. I can't quite remember, I should look this up, but um, just the early days of conversation around social enterprise, social entrepreneurs, what does that mean? And that really resonated with me. And I think microfinance became the first very tangible example of that to me when I went to the UN and, um, and learned about the model there. And ultimately it was actually Acumen Fund here in New York that was one hmm. of the early impact investors, uh, one of my longtime mentors, worked there and he helped uh connect me to some microfinance organizations in india to do this research so that just became the path that opened up to me to explore that social entrepreneurship side of things and it really resonated with the things that i was interested in um, around community building and um, making a difference uh you know i think through community through connection so
0: so i have a question here that is, how did when and how did you learn about fundraising nonprofits and charities you just mentioned uh, Ashoka, which Mm -hmm. um, is not not the Disney show um, (laughs) But a a well-known nonprofit, I think founded by Bill Drayton, or was he just did he just run it? Yeah, probably he was the founder. He might have coined the term social entrepreneur Mm -hmm. Or certainly used it a lot Mm -hmm. Um, He saw one of the uh, he emailed me a few times earlier in my career Mm -hmm. And when I say that I mean his assistant wrote his emails for him. You know, he used to get them printed out so he could read them all, and he would write his responses on them, and then she would type the response back, and she would do the little secretarial note yep. at the bottom. And I remember the first time I saw it, I was I was like, What is this? there?'s gibberish letters at the bottom of this email, <laughs> and I had to like look it up in the secretarial handbook. What was happening?
2: That's
1: like the modern day version is ChatGPT. Originally, this was I suppose so. Chat GPT.
0: Inter- <laughs> the the I, I, ChatGPT could take us off on a big tangent. <laughs> this was the first round at Unfunded List that we received proposals written by. ChatGPT, mm-hmm. which has been a fairly interesting thing for me.
2: Yeah. Wow. One of
0: the things that I that I so I was told, with like in no uncertain terms, that I would not be able to tell the difference between a ChatGPT proposal mm-hmm. and one written by a professional grant writer. And that's, yes, I can tell. Okay. Just want to be very clear. <laughs> I can definitely tell. So can probably most program officers still. It's, they're know. very interesting, but I mean, especially since I've, 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 been to how to write grant proposals with chat GPT workshops and I've seen enough examples. Yeah. I understand how it, how it writes and how it works. Mm-hmm. And also usually there's the proposal and then like <laughs> an email from some other writing sample from the author.
2: Mm, right. You can <laughs> and tell the it's, difference. If it's
0: wildly different, right. Yeah. Someone's red-black. applying from Congo and I know they don't speak English and the proposal's in perfect English. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the the those sorts of things. Uh, however, I think there's, there there is a, a, a ton of potential there. Um, particularly I was talking about all the time it takes.
1: Yeah, exactly. The admin <laughs> and
0: certainly it. it can take. It's going to be able to help um, remove some of the time there. That's great. Um, but like, so you've you uh uh you've mentioned volunteerism and um, you were. Dancing in the arts, but as a professional, you're getting mm-hmm. paid there. You know mm-hmm. there are dance companies where the dancers don't get paid, and as an I'm an actor, it's my art. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even when I was a professional actor, mm-hmm. it's like much more of a stipend situation, right? You're <laughs> actually,
1: probably the local nonprofit theater or something. Like
0: well, generally, that. I the, when I've been paid to do shows, you get paid for like the show.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: but not right. the, like, six weeks of rehearsal and all the other stuff that goes into it. Right. And it's really not a... One of the things I wish Dickinson had taught me when I was majoring in theater arts mm. was that theater is not a real business.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: um, and that if I wanted to do to do it, I needed to learn how to do lights and sound. Those That's how people get... The, if you want to make money as an actor, you better be really, really good at it. Yeah. <laughs> and even then, it's going to be frustrating. You might end up having to strike... Every ten years, something like that. <laughs> um, so, um, when you were at Occidental and Harvard, did you understand? How much did you understand about the the philanthropy that goes into those places? Those are philanthropic run institutions that receive donations and have five hundred one C three tax statuses yes. and are tax exempt organizations. How? Uh, and I'll admit, I didn't know that much about that aspect of college when I was going to college, and this is as someone who grew up on a college campus,
2: didn't mm-hmm. really
0: understand all of it. I sort of thought, I guess I kind of thought they were like quasi-government, because mm-hmm. they were schools. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Colby, Harvard, and I believe Occidental are private institutions responsible for their own budgets. Right. How much of, of that did you understand when you were going to school?
1: I had some sense of it, because I was a recipient of scholarships. And, um, I think at both Occidental and... Very expensive if you weren't.
2: Yeah, Yeah,
1: (laughs) most exactly. Um, still very expensive, but, Mm -hmm. and I think both of those schools also made a point of connecting you to the donor who was making your scholarship possible. And Mm -hmm. so building that direct connection, either whether you're meeting on occasion at a, a luncheon or something that they're hosting for everyone to thank donors and... Um,
0: you, as a scholarship recipient, were invited to donor events?
1: Yes. There were, I'm sure not all of them, of course, but there they were donor events where they would bring the scholarship recipients together with the donors who had made the scholarships available, and they took some interest in your progress and what you were interested in and knew that they were directly funding your scholarship to go to school. So through that experience, I, I had more of a sense of how what did you were think of,
0: Did you like talking to these folks?
1: I did actually. These were
0: strangers paying for you to go to school.
1: Yeah, I felt. It Seems like a potentially awkward. Grateful. I mean, it, it could be considered awkward, but I. There to was no me, sort of was... sense
0: of like um, that you might owe them something.
1: No, I didn't. I mean, not necessarily. What money, I owed them but... was was working hard and not squandering this opportunity. Uh, that was something that I felt that had been they deeply this... ingrained in me from dance. So I, there was no risk of that not happening. It was at,
0: at Dickinson. They were they would be very, they were they're always fundraising, um, like, like many schools. But I remember when I first got there, they started explaining, uh, and I was lucky. My parents were Colby professors, mm-hmm. so Colby paid for me to go to Dickinson, mm, okay. the, the full uh, weight of it. Uh, but Dickinson was quick to point out to me that that was not the full cost of my being there. So even though it was at the time like one of the highest tuitions in the country, mm-hmm. they would like send me these materials showing that like actually it costs this much, and I have all these donors to thank,
2: mm-hmm. right?
0: And I and I I resented that, because, <laughs> right? My parents worked very hard. Yeah. And their employer was willing to pay for me to go to school. Yeah. And I, if I, if there's anyone I feel grateful to, it's Colby College mm-hmm. for paying for me to go to school. I didn't ask for I didn't ask them to undercharge me. Yeah. <laughs> And quite frankly, I think that the amount that they were charging is more than enough. And I can do their 990s are public and I can pull them and I can do the back of the napkin math on that. Yeah. And sometimes it does not add up. Hmm. For instance, so Harvard, where you went, like I said, I've, I've been fortunate to interview several Harvard graduates on the show. And I usually like to talk about that this is one of the most powerhouse fundraising operations in the known world. Mm-hmm. They have been fundraising for over 400 years, which is one of the main reasons uh, why they have so much money. How much money, you ask? Would you like to make a guess <laughs> as to – so I only have figures from last year's tax return. Okay. And we can guess that this is – that the endowment is, in fact, probably about 3 to 5% bigger by now.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but how much money do you think Harvard has?
1: I, I wouldn't even venture a guess.
0: They have $51 billion. Wow. Uh, and an operating cost of five billion dollars, mm. so they need to make not quite ten percent tax free off their investments, which I think they do, <laughs> and that would cover their operations costs. Mm-hmm. Yes, they still charge tuition to folks. They still charge. Uh, in fact, a lot of colleges are. In fact, like one of the things we don't understand about them is that they're like largely real estate businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just renting out land that they own to people full price and not paying taxes on that land. Like lots of great benefit. I, I I'm all for. I'm all for it. Yeah. Harvard is providing great value, but we should understand what's going on there.
1: And this is Harvard University across the board. This isn't Harvard Business School. Is that right?
0: The Harvard endowment yeah. consists of 14,000 funds, mm. 70% of which are restricted to uh, specific things like the Schools. business school or something else. Mm-hmm. One of the largest gifts ever in history. Oh man. So I believe it was Paulson is the engineering school at Harvard now called the Paulson School yes. for Engineering mm-hmm. yeah okay so that was here's the Kennedy School here's this school the engineering school is unnamed and everybody knows these other ones but the engineering school had won more Nobel Prizes at that point mm. and they went to Paulson who didn't even I don't think even went to Harvard and they were like this is a great opportunity give us 400 million dollars hmm. <laughs> and we will name the now that school is named the Paulson School of Engineering I, I actually have always i often I don't think Kennedy gave four hundred million dollars, so
1: I doubt it. <laughs> but that, that happened a long time ago, so these things change over it time. He might have been he was he
0: had the he would have been able to raise that right. So I assume that's probably what it happened. part of it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Harvard himself, uh, there was a man named Harvard for very yep. long time, and there long still long are. Time. There's a Harvard and Harvard uh, law firm somewhere in New York, and it's huh? descendants of Harvard. Bill Harvard is a guy practicing law out there. <laughs> Wearing suits, and he guess where he went to school. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, hmm. what does say? oh yeah, so um, right the the with fourteen thousand funds and fifty one billion dollars in various bank accounts. Um, one one of the interesting facts about it is the fees they pay to fund managers. Mm-hmm. Is more than the cost of undergraduate tuition. Wow. <laughs> the fund managers make more money than undergraduate tuition does. Yeah, I okay. um, the The. Uh, so do you donate to Harvard or Oxford? I,
1: I have, yeah.
0: So so someone with fifty one billion dollars says, "Could I please have some money?" And you were you were,
2: yeah,
1: cool you know, with that. Well, the the way so. Um, not exactly I, that, that way. So the way that I've become involved in the school, both financially and with my time, my volunteering hours afterward, is I am now on the board of the Harvard Business School Women's Association. And um, through that work, we actually pool money. So we all give and we pool money to give back to uh, provide a, a scholarship for a woman at uh, HBS. And so, yes, through that work, um, we're both giving back to support women in school to go to school there and then we're also building a community of alumna after the fact to support each other and we have lots of programming and um, events educational networking other types of events as well to help women after they graduate along with their it's very interesting their professional mm-hmm. careers
0: so what I asked about your first experience with giving mm-hmm. it was the, the some key words for you so it was your mother uh, there's the library and education, right mm-hmm. and um, volunteering mm-hmm. doing some volunteer hours, right? And then fast forward a few decades and there you are volunteering to help women right get scholarships so they can read books. I, I like asking yeah. that. I think there's often huge connection
2: mm-hmm. between
0: our first giving memories and the and what it is when we do old when we're older. Yeah,
1: it's a nice connection.
0: As you probably know, most Americans give. Yes, whether it's well, recorded or not.
1: Last year, less th- well, fair enough, whether it's recorded or not.
0: Uh, one of my yes. general criticisms, So I, the, I'd like to talk about the Giving USA report. It's yep. um, <laughs> something I read every year. I generally have some, I think it's, they do their best. The methodology is difficult. Mm-hmm. A lot of giving is not giving that you are going to be able to track. Right. Uh, particularly, like, so you, you were to microfinance, there's remittances. Right. Um, we have an increasing number of refugees. As I understand from watching the news, your mayor believes that there's too many coming into the city. Yep. and I've been walking around, and it's quite crowded out there. I think you <laughs> might be right. Um, I think they should all move to Maine. We have plenty of space. Uh, and Actually, we have a long and thriving history of taking in asylees and refugees. Mm. And my uh, my Waterville has a large uh, Lebanese community mm-hmm. from in the eighties when they came when they all came over. Um, and some of those folks are giving back to their families in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Actual money in the envelope sent off, right? Yep. or given in ways that are generally not trackable but a lot of it is, is easy to track and it's probably becoming easy even more to track and mm-hmm. this year's giving usa report showed a drop in giving which is very unusual i believe it's the first time i've seen a drop in giving uh in my own career as a as a fundraiser and, and philanthropist i uh, just to quote the report americans gave 1.7 percent of their personal disposable income to charity in 2022. that's the lowest level since 1995. Hmm. um i remember It was two point four percent when I first started my first Mm. job as a development assistant at the Seed Foundation. I remember my boss explaining that to me, Mm -hmm. and he. I remember him also saying that giving was pretty much always two percent of GDP. Giving is two percent of GDP. There's nothing you can do about it. It never goes up. It never (laughs) goes down. It's two percent of GDP, and in fact, that's still like depending on how you look at the numbers. That's that's sort of what happened in the Giving USA report. But Mm -hmm. and there's lots of ways you can talk about why they might have less disposable income Mm -hmm. in 2022 and lots of reasons there Uh, what do you think why are americans giving less to charity according to this report
1: yeah i i mean you're right there's so many different reasons and so many different things it could be certainly the economic situation is one of them and um, i think a lot of people have been cutting back on spend generally so we tend to see giving also um, be affected by these these broader market dynamics. I do think what we're seeing alongside this decrease in giving through traditional 501c3 nonprofit organizations is an expansion of how people are giving back. So whether they're giving through crowdfunding campaigns, they're giving directly to help someone cover their rent next month. they're doing, as you said, remittances or you know many other forms of giving that people are doing that uh, aren't captured in this report. Um, I know Giving Tuesday has been trying to, to do a broader capture of all different types of giving and kind of broader generosity, state of generosity report. And they've been seeing um, through that work that generosity is very much up. It's just how we think about being generous and how and where we give is shifting. So my hope is that that, uh, you know, it's, it's not about a decline in giving so much as an expansion of how we think about giving. And um, I think that's a good thing. We were talking earlier about the challenges of some of these institutions, some of these legal frameworks, right? And uh, if someone wants to make an impact, often the first thing they think of is, oh, I should start a nonprofit. Well, no, maybe you should go run for office. Maybe you should go start a giving circle. Maybe you should, do any number of other things to channel that desire to make a difference. Um, maybe you should give through other means. So I think it's ultimately a good thing. Um, but I think it's going to be a little bit, I think it's going to take some time for our tracking to keep up with.
0: So it's a good It's a good thing.
1: Well, I think what we're seeing overall is a good thing, which is an increase in generosity and an expansion of how we're giving back.
0: I'm confused. Because the according to the report, the giving went down. So what's the increase in generosity that you were talking about?
1: Giving specifically to five hundred one c three nonprofits went down.
0: So you think giving overall went up I if think we count so. all things? Yes. Um, that's
1: my that's my theory based on some of the indicators we're seeing. From might other right. reports. Some of them
0: so political giving is at an all time high, absurd levels. Mm-hmm. Um, are you familiar with the term? So as a fundraiser in various offices, I would we would often talk about cannibalization,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and it can mean several things. I mean, I think the first time I so when I was at the Seed Foundation, we were launching a capital campaign.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: One of the things we were worried about was cannibalizing our annual donors. And actually right. Harvard probably has similar conversations when they do new capital campaigns. Right. So you've got a donor who in their mind is ready to give you his $10,000 gift every year. Yeah. right? And before he gives that, you go to him and you ask for a capital gift. And instead, he makes $10,000 gift to the capital campaign. And then he stops and he's no longer an annual fund donor. Doesn't do it this year, doesn't do it next year, doesn't do it the year after you've actually taken money out of your program mm-hmm. by doing that um i think all the i think the, the, the no i've not seen anyone in the news talk about it they'll they'll talk about fundraising totals going up and up and up right, right. we're looking at there's gonna be billions and billions mm. um and that's not that long ago like if you look at the how much like bill clinton raised to run for his reelection compared to what barack obama raised mm. to run for his reelection it's it, it doesn't look like it's the same Activity, <laughs> uh, and so you might have someone who was going to give thirty dollars to their local humane society, and instead gives fifteen dollars to Barack Obama. But, yeah, I think one of the, the one of my least favorite examples of cannibalism are those folks that stand on the sidewalks with um, uh, clipboards and ask for donations to nonprofits. Hmm. Uh, I've seen this is so cannibalization is very difficult to prove because it goes into like innate what they were going to do later. Yeah, <laughs> which is really, so really hard to it. capture in a survey because yes. they probably won't admit that they were going to make that larger gift. Right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but we have lots. Of, there, there is some evidence to show that someone might have been, might like, they give a hundred dollars to a nonprofit that they like every now and then. Mm-hmm. They could stop by somebody on the street and they could ask for money, and maybe it's just even the same nonprofit. They'll give right there on the street, but probably less because mm-hmm. they're standing there on the street talking to a stranger, not in the privacy room, doing it the normal way. Right. Right. And then also that those folks take a little bit off the top to pay the person who's standing there with a clipboard, which is fair. Mm-hmm. Right. And so smaller donation, a little bit off the top ends up um, the given going down. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, I also think we might be seeing some, right, there's a lot of very positive coverage when very wealthy people make large gifts, uh, particularly Mackenzie Scott.
2: Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but a lot of that coverage the
0: giving us so much and the coverage is sometimes exaggerated um, She's giving a lot she's being very generous and I think she's being very thoughtful. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan when folks hire professionals to, to give money which she has done She's working with some of the best and there are proposals Yeah, there are proposals now for a long time people were telling me that proposals are going away because he doesn't read proposals and I was like, well, we'll see Right and currently it's all about reading proposals over there Um yeah. I, uh, in fact, we are reviewing some of the folks that didn't get into the hmm. open call this round um, But I think some folks might be at home watching that news and say listen if she's given You know millions of dollars to yeah. my favorite charity. I don't need to give my fifty dollars.
2: hmm
0: right? Um, and I'm, I'm really worried about the upcoming elections so I'm gonna give it here or I'm gonna give it to my family or I'm gonna give it back to this other country in some other way Yeah, right i as a member of giving some giving circles I'll say that I think that there's some possibility there as well. And I'll give a personal experience.
2: Mm-hmm. When I
0: first joined the Slingshot um, Funds Giving Circle,
2: mm-hmm.
0: my grandf- my grandmother was very. She she gave the give 7,500 to participate in the circle back then, um, and she gave the 7,500, and she said actually very clearly that this was she was going to give 15,000 to I forget something that she normally gives money to,
2: uh-huh.
0: and she did not give it to them she gave the 7500 to me and that's to do this, this circle. And in her mind, we would be amped. She was giving just as much because the total payout at Slingshot's very large. Right. <laughs> right. But she was giving less. Yeah. Even though maybe the impact was more, mm-hmm. which is an arguably true statement. Mm-hmm. But like I've personally seen giving circles contribute to folks giving less. Mm-hmm. Is there anything we do about cannibalization here at Grapevine?
1: So it's, interesting because um i mean anything that we proactively do we don't talk about cannibalization or uh it's a scary word it yeah Uh, it is but i would like a better (laughs) word
0: because the the, i I, i'm not talking about eating people i want to be clear (laughs)
1: um but no i you know there there is something in the giving circle space so when i do weekly i do two different calls with potential numbers so i always spend time 45 minutes twice a week any open kind of office hours, we call them, but anyone who wants to come learn more about the model, the movement, who we are at Grapevine, why we're doing what we're doing, I think it's important for me to be available to people, to learn more and to ask their questions and to know that we're real people doing this and you know, who's behind it. And in those sessions, um, when I talk about the model, I do talk about the amplification aspect and how powerful that can be. When you come together, for example, in a group with 100 other people, everyone donates $100, now you have a $10,000 check to give away to that, a nonprofit all at once, right? That's so much more that they can do it, they can plan around, that they can accomplish in that one, that one gift. And I always make make uh, sure to say, look, if you're giving $100 here and there to nonprofits throughout the year, that's great and you should absolutely keep doing that. That is meaningful, that's important, please keep doing that. But imagine if you did that same thing and you added this, this collaborative effort where now you can give this one much larger gift at a time as well, that can go so much further and you can discover so many great organizations, Um, great initiatives in your community that might expand your thinking about your own philanthropy and have trickle-down effects into what you give to and how much you give over time which is what the research has shown um, that that giving circles can often do so um, so I always encourage people to keep doing what they're doing and do this in addition and we also have seen in the research that giving circles tend to be a way in which people give as part of their total portfolio not the only way that they give. And so we also often talk about that, that this is a, a piece of your giving portfolio and it has a specific place and role to play, but all the other things do as well.
0: Um, yes, excellent. So I think, uh, to go back to my grandmother's example, uh, this did give many organizations the opportunity to get on her radar mm-hmm. that would not have otherwise. And I do think it's possible, and I know i know for a fact that some of the groups we funded through the circle got outside of that from grandma and also from Mm. all the other members grandmas most of us were getting the 7500 from our grandmothers Mm -hmm. this was a giving circle for young Jewish philanthropists in their 20s who were like gonna be on the foundation board someday Mm -hmm. so it was sort of like Practice for us mm-hmm. and in that way we we were very encouraging to the applicants to be like listen you should like you're applying for this grant but like realize that all of us are gonna be on the boards of foundations someday right, right? and we're doing we that so we were very deliberate to have site we did site visits which were somewhat burdensome for the applicants but a tremendous opportunity for the applicants mm-hmm. <laughs> and Absolutely. they and not um, um, required
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, so you mentioned so we did we definitely read proposals back then at Slingshot, and then Most of the giving circles I've partnered with, actually all of them, (laughs) because of what I do, they all accept proposals. If they didn't, Mm -hmm. I don't know how I would partner with them. You mentioned earlier that some of them don't, some of the programs don't. Um, So can you, how do you, how are folks making decisions about where to fund if the applicants aren't given a chance to make a direct appeal?
1: Right. Yeah, it's, so it is a, um, a, varied movement, I will say. So there are lots of different types of giving circles, from small groups of friends and family members to much larger groups with hundreds or even thousands of people pooling their money to give back together, groups that are focused on giving to their local communities across a broad range of cause areas, others that are location agnostic but giving to a particular cause or issue as a group. So uh, lots of different ways to structure these groups and also, financial arrangements, right? So whether you're giving $100 per person every quarter or $10,000 per person every year, everything in between and beyond, all of these models are out there. And similarly, we see differences in how groups decide where to fund. So the most popular version actually is not an application-based version. It's members of the group nominate nonprofits for the group to consider. Uh, Through that nomination, then three are selected as finalists and ultimately the group then gets to learn about those organizations. They can do their own research. There's typically a presentation from the member that nominated them where they can learn more, they can ask questions, and ultimately then there's a majority vote to decide which one they want to support with their funds. So in this way, actually a lot of giving circles end up funding nonprofits and sending them checks when the giving the nonprofit never even knew they were under consideration. Um, and part of this is is to push back on some of that administrative overhead uh, that we talked about earlier, right? Let's, let's try and identify, let's put the work on us to identify organizations that are doing great work, to do the research, to do the consideration on our own, get the information we need, and then just give them the money. Let's not make them spend all that time and effort doing that work. Um, with that being said, there's certainly an opportunity and an interest from nonprofits to get in front of these giving circles that they think would be relevant to their work, right? That is what I was going to, make to that point that out.
0: As someone who talks to fundraisers and proposal authors, yep. And and I've heard, and actually this is something Mackenzie Scott said for was saying for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, right, we don't want until they give them the gift. Right, many of them heard on the phone they were right, receiving those funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a couple things. One, the authors, at least the ones I've spoken to, which is a lot, uh, want the opportunity to submit proposals. Mm-hmm. They are not actively looking for, they don't want to be cut out entirely of this process until the decision is made. They want the opportunity right. to advocate for themselves. Right. I think some proposal formats are burdensome, mm-hmm. ask dumb, Ask the same question repeatedly, right? And some of the more corporate applications now, pages and pages of demographic information that most small nonprofits don't have, like there's lots of ways proposals can be improved, but fundamentally they want to be able to make that case uh, as a savvy fundraiser in the model you described, I'm thinking about how I can get one of my board members to join this circle and nominate me and make that presentation, which of is course. fundamentally the same thing as submitting a proposal.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I'm just doing it in a, di- I'm in a kind of a sneakier method, which is probably not as intended, but I need to raise money for my nonprofit. Right. So I don't have the, t- I'm not going to just sit around and wait and hope that this giving circle chooses me. Right. That someone, the stranger nominates me. Mm-hmm. You need Fundraisers need to be proactive about the stuff that they are doing. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: And I don't think that's a bad thing, right? When we talk to nonprofits, that is one of the things that I share with nonprofits. This is how I've seen nonprofits be successful when they do want to strategically put together a giving circle strategy. And part of that is do your research as the nonprofit. What are the giving circles that you would be a good fit for? We built the global giving circle directory, and that is on the Grapevine platform. Anyone can use that and search the... 3,500, 4,000 4, uh, giving circles or so that we, we know of at this point and find those that they think would be a good fit and find more information about them. Some of them will accept applications. Uh, a lot of them won't. But then you have something to share with those supporters, those board members, and encourage them to get involved. And the nice thing about that is that you're now, as a nonprofit, encouraging more collaboration in the sector, right? Because that board member is going to join that giving circle. Mm. They're going to connect with other donors that's going to help bring you into that conversation great opportunity for you and also great opportunity for them to build connection with other funders that also care about this community or this cause and if they fund other things as well that's great again this is like this idea of it lifts all boats right let's grow the pie let's not be so let's approach this work from a position of abundance Um, and so there are strategic ways you can do this and I think um, it it can be very helpful for everyone, for the nonprofit, for the the donor, the board member, and for the broader community.
0: Very good. Uh, So you also have done some fundraising. As I understand, you have recently finished a fundraising round.
1: Yes. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Thank you.
0: Uh, So you have your money and you now spend it until it's gone, (laughs) right? That's the plan?
1: Something like that. Hopefully, hopefully we don't spend it until it's entirely gone. You have gone. to spend it.
0: I think in general they want you. They're going to want you to spend it.
1: Oh yes, we will. We are spending <laughs> it. Don't worry about that.
0: Uh, so the uh, the giving circles on the platform, these are giving. It's what we would call philanthropic capital, right? That's right. Generally to 501 C three organizations. Although I imagine there might be some some of the circles that have broader that are willing to accept other groups, possibly at the very least, fiscally sponsored groups?
1: Yes. So the platform itself right now, we facilitate donations to 501c3s, fiscally sponsored organizations. We can also support federally recognized tribes. Um, we yeah. support quite a few of those actually through a few of our giving circles and uh, some schools and and faith-based organizations as well. We, as a 501c3 public charity, have to abide by and the Essentially, operates as a cha- as a community donor advised fund in a sense. We have to move money to these charitable organizations um, that the IRS recognizes.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah. So the, the four tax reasons have to go to to that's certain right. organizations. So the basically the same tax reasons that a foundation has to has to follow. That's right? right. Considering the same sorts of organizations, right? Um, but that's the funding that you've raised is a different kind of funding.
1: Uh, We've raised a couple, few different types of funding. (laughs) So building a social enterprise, as we were talking about earlier, being inspired by this idea of building a sustainable, thriving organization that has social mission at its core. Um, Turns out our legal structure is not exactly set up for that concept um, in the best ways so what we've done like many others is we've set up two organizations we've set up a 501c3 public charity and we've set up a company a c corp social enterprise and these two entities allow us to one administer our model but two allow us to raise funding from different types of funders Um, so it gives us more optionality when we're looking at, at supporting
0: our mission so funders that aren't so, so philanthropic funding mm-hmm. is often like required. So like a foundation has to give five percent away of their endowment every year; or they lose their status. Right. right? Um, there are a whole other class of funders, investors, who don't have to follow any of those rules, right? right. And you have you've raised some money from them, right? And they, they d- that's not because the government's requiring them to give away some of their money, right? They do it for other reasons, probably because they're expecting some money back, right? Your invest- some of your investors want. A return a return right so why are investors investing in a giving service how do they how are they envisioning that return coming to them
1: yeah so on the the company side we've raised equity uh, equity capital so essentially people have given us money invested in us instead of them getting a charitable own, tax receipt they own some of your company then they own some of our company exactly and I think what you're talking about is what is the exit strategy right like if someone owns something they part don't of give company money. foundations
0: give money away. Without expecting it back right investors do not
1: right exactly yeah the foundations get the charitable tax receipt investors own some part of your company and expect some kind of return in the future now that can take many different uh, uh, models right so some companies will pay dividends back to their investors at some point so they never actually sell the company and have some big exit where everyone uh, gets some return and kind of exits their position in the company, but they make some ongoing return for that money over time. I know a number of social enterprises that have taken that route. Um, others are expecting more of an exit where the company is sold or goes public on the public market, right? And that's where you're essentially still selling part of your company, but to the broader public versus selling to another private company or, or public company, some other company um, that will then buy out uh, your, your investment and um, and you, you get that return. So we have a variety of investors. All of them, I would say, have an impact interest, um, but some are heavily impact and I, I don't think really have um, much interest in or, um, I don't know, expectation around what the ultimate financial exit is. They see the impact that we're creating and that is more than enough for them. Um, for example, we've had a number of people actually take philanthropic capital that they put into a donor advised fund and then have that invested in us um, as equity. Now, what they're hoping, oh, there's a whole, there's this really interesting um, model that's been built around this uh, by a lot of impact investors. There's a group in in the DC area called Impact Assets that does this, has been leading the charge on this, I, I would say, um, I'm sure with many others. I'm not, I'm not as, they actually submitted
0: believe it or not they submitted a proposal to me once.
1: okay well there you go well over
0: a thousand we've read it's hard to mention anything i've not read one of their proposals surprised i haven't read one of yours
1: well you think (laughs) about a foundation right you take money that has been donated and you invest it to your point earlier harvard is spending how much to all of these investors to invest their endowment to grow it over time well what if that money that 50 billion dollars isn't just invested in whatever it is but is invested in Social enterprises, things that are also creating social change, while some of that us
0: invested, invested in Chevron as well.
1: Sure. So what I'm saying is, you could take that money and invest it in a company like Grapevine instead. And hey, we're going to turn that money into more giving circles and more philanthropy and more social impact across the country. And you know, the but it was money that was originally, get a return.
0: originally for philanthropic purposes, and you have a philanthropic arm. Mm-hmm. What's why switch it over, if the impact is more than enough for these investors?
1: That's a great question. So some, we have gone into the philanthropic arm. Others has have gone into the company, primarily a timing issue. We, we started with the company first. We didn't have our nonprofit set up at that point. So they um, donated through their donor advised fund and then had that invested in us. And then we have others that have done straight investment in the company. So they are looking for a return. And what we have talked about there is the big opportunity here to build a collaborative collective giving movement across the country and globally. And we're providing infrastructure and tools for that um, for free, we're a tip-based model, so anyone can start or join a Giving Circle on our platform for free. Um, But they have the option to leave us a tip and that goes to support our operations. And increasingly, as we keep growing this movement, we have companies and foundations and others coming to us saying, hey, we want your help also starting a Giving Circle or creating a team-based um, giving model. And so as we do more of that type of work, there's other imp- opportunities for us to earn income um, from you know, companies, foundations with budgets. So what I see is us continuing to grow this movement. And at some point, I think it does make sense that we could end up merging with some of these bigger platforms, other platforms to create an even larger um, uh, sort of accessible, more accessible model for more people to get involved in the movement. And that would if that were to happen, that would be a kind of return where there would be some kind of merger and, and return for
0: investors. Um, I, there was a press release I was able to find uh, mm-hmm. from one of your investors, and it was largely what you just said. And uh, I thank, thank you very much uh, for further explaining it to me. Because uh, sure. I, I, it is, and I read these often, and like I often I have initiated some pivots. I've mm-hmm. made it very clear to people that philanthropic funding is going to be way too difficult for them to to get to achieve their goals. Mm-hmm. And one thing I will say about venture capitalists is that they are often more approachable, not mm-hmm. necessarily approachable, but more approachable <laughs> than foundations, which are some of the least approachable people in the world, yeah. and they, have, they kind of have to be.
2: Yeah.
0: I've been in their shoes um, a few times. Um,
1: I agree. I think it's been a lot easier for us to get that kind of capital early on to start something, and there's been a lot more trust in, we're just going to invest in you and this idea, And give us some time and space to figure it out and figure out something wholly new i mean we're bringing the giving circle movement online for the first time right it's a whole new thing and uh i think the philanthropic capital world we've at least my experience of it has been less risk taking than that and so it's been harder we've actually had to prove ourselves more over the last few years to where now we're getting some of these bigger foundations to say okay great we'd like to give you some funding to continue and expand this work
0: Mm-hmm. So the, I, I guess for me, right, mm-hmm. uh, and I spent a lot of time trying to think about like what's the, the right type of funding for this particular pro- proposal that I'm that I'm reading now, mm. uh, and I think and I do think it can be a huge challenge to have different types of funding because there's you've got more than one bottom line amongst the folks who are, who have given you money and are expecting something, mm-hmm. right? The foundations that gave you money are expecting you to grow a giving circle movement,
2: mm-hmm. the
0: investors. They definitely started with that in their press releases, uh, but it they, they, they got to a section. It was why, basically why we're giving them money. Mm-hmm. And that was about what you were mentioning with the feet that millennials are more likely to pay the tip hmm. when they donate online. And so they, they're, they're thinking that this is – as you put more giving circles onto your platform, they're going to mm-hmm. be able to – and this is like the – it's the modern American dream, right? Uh, It's also the plot to Superman three. I make a little (laughs) bit of and office space and some other. I make a little bit of money every time there's a transaction. Yeah,
2: right.
0: Uh, And that's that's different from a funder who might see tremendous potential in giving circles Mm -hmm. and is funding for the reason because they want to see, for instance, more local like, more organized local funding. Sure. Uh, And then one of the things I that I find very curious and actually very interested to know has a giving circle ever funded Grapevine.
1: No. We've never asked a Giving Circle for funding. We've had lots of our Giving Circle members fund Grapevine directly, but not as a Giving I Circle. Which is participating the in the
0: circle. Gift. Here's a donation. That's right. Do you ask for those after folks participate?
1: We did one ask at the end of last year when we launched the foundation for the first time, and and actually hardly well, money if
0: you don't ask. I'm not trying to.
1: <laughs> right, so we hadn't <laughs> asked prior. I
0: I don't ask for money enough for my. I have thousands of volunteers, and I appreciate mm. that they're volunteering, and I don't like to ask them for money. Yeah. They're like the only ones who ever would donate to me. <laughs> so yeah. I really probably, if you're listening now, consider <laughs> this: right, we have a donate button, or you could join a giving circle and nominate funded list. Right, and then we, yeah. I, but I personally I don't think a giving circle would ever choose to fund unfunded lists. I'm pretty familiar with the kind of folks who do fund us. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was at Slingshot, a giving circle, we had funders, but they were all from, they were they were um, gifts from people who who had participated, and yeah, after the fact, we would never, as a circle, decide to fund another circle. Mm-hmm. But obviously, giving circle programs need funding. This is why you That's, exist. there's yeah. an administrative burden. Yeah. It is a, it's, a, it's a curious challenge yes. that the funding, the funding movement you seek to grow will not fund the movement seeking to grow it.
1: Yeah. I think, I think that is changing a bit though because I think part of that is building this concept of a movement. What we've discovered as we've been doing this work over the last three or four years is that a lot of people didn't realize that there were other giving circles like theirs. They thought, oh, we're just this one group in Philadelphia. We didn't know that there are thousands of these groups across the country. So I think as we've started to build more awareness and connection and community around this, an understanding of what the broader mission is and the opportunity to diversify and democratize philanthropy through this model, more people are getting excited about that and wanting to not only participate in, it in their local context or with their particular giving circle, whatever it's focused on, but also wanting to support the broader movement. And essentially, I mean, that's what we're asking when people make their donation through us and leave a tip. You know, and we are getting tips from people. Um, and then we are getting people who are making those individual contributions to us um, when we've asked. Like I said, we've only asked that, that one time for our community, but now we're starting to make bigger asks. And uh, we've been looking at foundations, but it's actually an interesting um, thing that you've just surfaced for us to think about. Like, What would it look like for us to ask our giving circles? Would you consider one of your grant cycles going? to the foundation for this particular initiative.
0: I would be cautious about cannibalization with that.
1: Yeah, there you go. In fact,
0: <laughs> there'd be no way to do that without there being some cannibalization.
1: And I think for us, so much of our work is about building this community and this spirit. We wouldn't, we really shy away from anything that might feel, like we wouldn't want the nonprofits in this community or that giving circle to feel like we're taking money away from their local you know, mission, whatever it is that they're trying to fund. So. Even for our tip, for example, none of that comes out of the donation. It's on top of it, separate from it, and that's up to you to leave. But we don't want that cannibalization uh,
0: concern to creep yeah. in for people. So, there are an increasing number of—I'll use the term gatekeepers. No, that's not right. Some of them are gate. Some of them are kind of gatekeepers. But there's an increasing number of platforms and groups who have sort of inserted themselves into the fundraising atmosphere. Uh, I have a donate button on my website.
2: Mm-hmm. You
0: can donate to unfunded list. Very, and, and you can pull your phone out right now and do it. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and so I, I appreciate some of these platforms that exist for like you know gathering the money and sending it to me. Uh, there, are the, the, my least favorite would be the. There's some that like do corporate giving programs,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? And honestly, some of them, like, it's, it's just very untoward. So those corporations could just give the, the, the. What they do is they go into the company and they say, hey, we're going to make it very easy for you to give to these nonprofits. It's already, again, I have a donation button on my website. I, you don't, I don't need anybody's help to receive a donation from a company, right. right? But these companies have done a very good job of coming in there and saying, we're gonna do your workplace giving program for you. right? And they make money off of holding on to my check for a very long time. Mm. I get these things nine months after they're issued. Wow. And that's only because I bother them quite a bit.
2: right?
0: Mm. So I do wonder, uh, 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 hopefully, right, that we're, we're doing some quick disbursements here Right, and right, as you're thinking about your administrative burden, like in many ways, getting a gift from a giving circle is easier mm-hmm. for the fundraisers, but sometimes it can be difficult. And as a fundraiser, mm-hmm. I, I have often been, not often, sometimes been resentful of folks who have, without asking me, inserted themselves into my fundraising. Mm-hmm. Lots of these nonprofits have professional fundraisers mm-hmm. who would like to run their fundraising programs,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and there's, you've got, corporate programs where some corporate managers giving the presentation about the nonprofit that they founded mm-hmm. without them in the room, right? Or the same might be happening at a giving circle. Yeah. And these are some of the and again as someone this is the primary group I talk to, struggling mm-hmm. fundraisers. So I will always think about what they I also think about the members of the giving circle, right? Yeah. And they don't necessarily want to talk to professional fundraisers. So
2: <laughs> Right. Protecting <laughs> their
0: time. <laughs> yeah. I understand. Because if you if you're talking to me, I'm probably I might get a gift out of you.
1: Yeah. Well, look, I think if done well, like these platforms, these um, almost intermediary players bring a lot of value, right? They can facilitate some of these things well. Now, in some cases, if they're holding on to your money for nine months, for example, that's not really creating value
0: for the system. So I no longer participate in like workplace um, like matching programs Mm -hmm. because it's just it's not worth my it's 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 it's, it's free money and it's not worth my time to to go after because they make it too difficult. Yeah. which is by design. They know enough people will get frustrated or not have the time or not have the staff, and they end up keeping money that's supposed to be, supposed to be donated to places.
1: That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, we, we, I think part of our model, too, because we're pooling money, it's these larger amounts that go, and um, our giving circles know where the money goes, and they're often in touch with these nonprofits. So if we're not getting that money out the door, they're calling us. Uh, I saw Jane at the grocery store and she says she hasn't gotten her check yet. You know, like, so there's a real... That's
0: that's general. So the company is Benevity. Yeah. I don't mind talking about them. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to, the the employee, uh, some of my volunteers work places where they can get their gift matched if they give through their workplace giving program. Mm -hmm. So they'll do it that way. And they don't always tell me that they, like, if they don't tell me that they've done that, Mm -hmm. I don't, I won't, I don't know. Because they don't, Right. <laughs> they, they don't, don't know to tell. To go check. No, right. and I'm expected to sign up for all of these platforms. Every time there's a new platform, I'm expected to spend a bunch of time signing up for it, even before there are any donations for me.
2: Yeah.
0: Right. And it's the, that it is. And I see them just coming out and coming out, and I don't see a whole lot of criticism of it. Yeah. Generally um, speaking, I would say if you're running a company and you want to get your employees engaged in giving, you should start a giving circle. You shouldn't work with some other purely. But everybody has no 501c3 arm, no. no they are an international company they, they know better than to be based in the US um, and um, quite frankly they're really not making it easier for people to give at work it yeah. was easy to give at work <laughs>
2: yeah
0: uh, i when i was at c foundation i was in charge of the combined federal campaign hmm. that's some of the easiest money i ever raised oh. cuz the check just arrived mm-hmm. right and like so, so th- these things can certainly happen but you need to think about not just the donors, not just the administrative, not just the company, but like the target funders. And if you're going to have thousands of different giving circles, that means you're going to have lots of different kinds of fundraisers and expectations and right needs. Mm-hmm. Um, I have seen organizations fold before the grant arrived because mm-hmm. the grant took too long wow. to get cut and sent Yeah.
1: Out. See, we do monthly granting. Um for that reason, because we're always we, we talk about giving circles as being a high velocity model, money in, money out. Most of these groups are operating on a cycle, so they're doing this every three months, sometimes every month. They we need to keep getting the money out because we need to keep them giving, you know, yeah. and that's that's how the model works. It's not like uh, a DAF or one of these other models where you might park money for years at a time. So um, we've built everything to really facilitate that and keep that money flowing into the community and keep that. F- Reporting back to those donors that they're feeling good about that and keep their velocity of giving up.
0: Okay. I am going to ask you just a few more questions. Okay. Uh, We've been talking for an hour and 30 minutes (laughs) about giving circles and philanthropy and lots of other stuff. Thank you, everyone who's been listening this long. Uh, And thank you, Emily. It's been very interesting. I've been learning a lot. Um, So, uh, as, as someone who reads lots of different grant proposals, Every time I read one, I have to go look something up. I've never mm-hmm. been able to read a grant proposal where I understood everything that was in there, and I didn't need to do like a lot of extra research. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm pretty good at researching nonprofits. I've been doing it for a long time. Um, do you think is a is someone with absolutely no philanthropy experience who's just first time joined a giving circle? What sort of education do they need in order to be an effective giver? Or can they can the average American just start giving right now without any extra?
1: Just get started. I always like to say, just get started. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, just get involved. And I think a giving circle is a really great on-ramp for a lot of people who are in that place. I think it's a great compliment to a lot of people who have much more robust giving already in their lives. It's a great way to expand their portfolio of giving approaches, both to amplify their impact and their education, their connection with others. But if you're just starting out talking to a philanthropic advisor might not be the first thing on your list right especially if you don't have a a a certain amount of resources that you're looking to give away Um, and i think if you join a giving circle what we've seen is it can be a really enjoyable and comfortable way to learn through others other people are nominating organizations talking about causes that they think are important why they think this organization is doing great work so it's a great way to discover organizations and also to learn how others think about impact and what's valuable for that particular community or that cause whatever the the giving circle uh, focus might be around so i definitely think it's a great way to get involved to learn and through that, what we often see with Giving Circles is that people then get excited about a particular organization or a particular um, initiative and go deeper, right? So then you can you can use that as a jumping off point to maybe volunteering or donating to an organization directly, even going on to becoming a board member and just continuing to deepen and expand your, your experience in philanthropy um, through a variety of ways. So definitely think it's a great place to just get started. I don't think you need to do any research before you join a group other than to find the one that feels like a good fit for you. Um, And we at Grapevine, and there are other uh, uh, providers as well that have lots of good resources for people to um, get started. So how do you think about nominating nominating a nonprofit for your group if that's their model where do you find great nonprofits what are questions you might ask when nonprofits are being presented and you're trying to make a decision so lots of good resources like that on our platform and others that you can use in the process of of um you know learning while doing basically as you join one of these
0: but surely there are some things that would make one a better giver being knowledgeable about your community Being connected enough into your community to be able to nominate nonprofits. Sure. Um, Yeah. Like being aware of the issue that's being funded. Like if you didn't understand climate change and you're funding climate change organizations. Yeah. Uh, One of the organizations that raises a lot of money every year is a group dedicated to curing autism,
2: Mm.
0: which is not something that doctors think is necessary or possible. Mm -hmm. But they raise a lot of money every year because they're talking about finding the cure.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So there are, and, and ask any professional program officer. There are bad nonprofits that write good proposals and have good fundraising programs, mm-hmm. and there are great nonprofits that write bad proposals and have bad fundraising <laughs> programs. Right. Right. So, uh, and I I do. Uh, I I like the idea of just of get started. Mm-hmm. I learned by doing it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But you, this is something you can get better at.
1: Absolutely, and I think that's what I'm trying to make the case of. Just get started, but then use these resources that are out there, and engage with the others in the group, right, a big part of the value of a group of people. is There are lots of people who know a lot. There are lots of people who have been doing this for years and have nonprofits they can bring to the table have knowledge and experience they can share. And if you're not one of those, how fortunate for you that you get to learn through them. Right, And how fortunate for them that they get to share that with you and with others who care and and help inform the next generation. So this community-based model really does facilitate a lot of that learning, I think, in a really effective way um, while making impact,
0: learning while doing. I personally stopped participating in giving circles because I found myself too influential. Mm. Um, I am a professional fundraiser. I knew lots about nonprofits. I wrote and read grant proposals all the time.
2: Mm-hmm. Every
0: time I went to the giving circle meeting, we would end up funding exactly what I wanted to and not what I didn't.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> and I, I enjoyed having that level of power and authority, but I also noticed that like other, p- other people who were trying to like just get into it, I was I found myself mm-hmm. steam and I cared very much. It wasn't something I was going to like let us give a grant to a crappy nonprofit that wrote a bad proposal just cuz right right. we're letting someone have some experience right i i joined because i wanted them to go to the best place um but i I appreciate what you're saying i think i am sure and i've heard it from lots of them that those folks learned from me Mm -hmm. (laughs) in those conversations and i was um maybe i should still maybe maybe i'll join another one well and that's Uh, it too you can always
1: join a different one right is there
0: is there so i think if you've never done this before Mm-hmm. I think you probably should join one with folks that have some experience, people who have read some proposals and know a little bit about, it's preferably somebody who's worked at a nonprofit should be there who understands the day-to-day work, because I think if you've never actually done it, then there's no way you could understand. Um, but I, the, the, for me it became very apparent, the like, the, some of the power dynamic issues mm. that we were having there. Um, and I'm sure that must be happening at Grapevine. Um, you have, I assume, like methodologies and best practices for like building consensus and um, that sort of stuff.
1: We do. And we have some great training, great workshops for our leaders on how to build consensus, how to set values for your giving circle, how to identify and consider nonprofits. Um, So there's lots of resources there for the leaders, but also more broadly um, for the members as well.
0: So uh, the uh, the slingshot fund giving circles the, the, was the most prolific that I participated and we gave a, half a million dollars a year mm. um, to 10 different organizations so 10 fifty thousand dollar grants right um, in order to be to apply for those you had to first get into the slingshot guide which was a book that we published mm. every year and we gave it to all the major Jewish foundations for free here's your here's your slingshot guide mm. these are the 50 Jewish organizations that we young Jews think are the most promising and actually they got a lot of most of the funding from that program came from giving the guide for free to foundations, because uh, then they would learn about it. Yeah. Um, but in the circle, we would we would, would inevitably be that every year that we were giving ten grants and saying no to forty organizations. Uh, and I once one year, so it was always like so we had more than ten members. Mm-hmm. So it was so signing up for the like the, the really fun call, we're giving you fifty thousand dollars. Right? People would people, those would get filled, those slots would get filled quickly. Yeah. There'd usually be, like, two people making the call, which is weird. I remember one time I did it, and we, like, went back and forth with the words. It was like, I said congratulations. And then they said, <laughs> <laughs> it's actually very hard to have two people make that announcement. Yeah. Um, That's the No one would ever want to sign up for the declination calls. Yeah.
1: And it's so, like the Oscars, you know, when you have the two people, and they have to announce the Oscar, and it's, it's always similar. awkward, because who says it? Who gets to say congratulations? Who gets
2: and, and, they, and they
0: show they would show you the <laughs> they show you the other the other considered folks mm-hmm. up there, and you get to see their disappointment or whatever. Generally, the best practice with uh, I think probably giving circles and other things is that if you reject someone's application, and again they don't always know that they've that they're being considered with your groups, so this wouldn't right. come up. But assuming it's a program where they do know they've applied, right? Um, the the in general giving feedback to someone who's been rejected by a giving circle
2: mm-hmm.
0: is very hard because like you didn't get it because like those particular individuals chose other programs mm-hmm. that's that's the reason and without being in that room you're never going to find out and even if you were in that room to find out that probably wouldn't be that useful information to you anyway uh, mm. so um, the big program that I've come up with on Unfunded list is co-review mm. I can review with any program that is accepting proposals.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, currently we work with this big international platform and we read mostly international proposals. A lot of the domestic US proposals that we've read have come through co-review partnerships with mm. giving circles, which I really enjoy. They give these, these particular giving circles have been a lot of first-time philanthropists uh, and a lot of first-time grantees. Mm-hmm. So these are folks who are learning. About philanthropy, So it was a great way for us to come in and do our very robust program of thoroughly reviewing all of the applications so that even the rejected folks at these giving circles still get quite a bit of discussion um, and are able to decide, right, are able to improve their applications. We had several with our first next-gen giving circle um, partnership, several folks rejected the first year were able to get grants the second year, which is quite mm-hmm. the achievement. Um, However, those members were different. <laughs> like a lot of it is just sort of up in the air. Uh, and so right, the, it's never I can never tell somebody, you didn't get this grant because you didn't do XYZ. I've never, in over 1,000 proposals, never been able to do that. Much more of a lengthy, nuanced progress pro- process, which is what tells me this is an important thing to do, mm-hmm. particularly for the authors. They're very, very interested in receiving this feedback. I think it would be impossible for Giving Circles to give feedback to every single group on their radar during the process mm-hmm. right um, So I wonder if you can talk to me a little bit about the like the declination process or the, uh, just the potential for the independent review of folks considered by giving circles.
1: And do you mean of the, the organ when you say of folks considered by giving circles, do you mean the organizations generally or by a particular proposal from them? So an independent review of the folks considered by giving circles, I think, is what you asked. So I'm wondering if you're an independent review so of a, a, give, an a giving circle does
0: A giving circle does their process, which naturally, and I yeah. understand that the process can be done many, many different ways. Yeah. But certain things will always be true. Mm-hmm. There were a certain number of groups considered.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: some of those groups considered did not get grants. Right. And the giving circle itself probably can't explain why. Power dynamics various other reasons. Right. So the result, and this is true not just for giving circles, for foundations, for government programs, for individual funders, for sure. everybody, is that the vast majority of those considered groups yep. receive nothing.
1: Right. So how do you communicate some kind of feedback so how do to you, them?
0: And, and, and I believe mm-hmm. I can do it to everybody, mm-hmm. right? And I'm curious on your, your thoughts on that. If you've, if you've seen any of the giving circles do similar programs. When I signed up to do all 40 declination calls that round, people mm-hmm. thought I was crazy.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It was one of the most educational experiences of my life, I'll say. Those yeah. calls were very difficult.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, but we were able to turn them into real stuff on certain occasions. So yeah. I, I, A couple times I, I just introduced them to other members of the giving circle because yep. I knew they, they liked that nonprofit because I was yeah. there in the room. Yeah. <laughs> and I also knew that they are about to join the board. Of, they have other things that they can do for them. Right. Um, but the, the standard practice in a lot of philanthropy is we, we we deal with the grantees and not everybody else.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think in the giving circle model, uh, there's this sense that you you want to be supportive of everyone, even if they're not everyone gets the large grant that quarter. One, they might those others might get the larger grant next quarter, right? If it's a quarterly group or the next cycle, whatever that cycle cadence is. Um, but secondly, I think within the giving circle movement, there is a real attention to how else can we help. And are there other ways that the five T's we often talk about in philanthropy, right? And so I always forget all of them, but it's time, treasure, talent, testimony, and ties. There we go. Got all five. And so there are more ways than just your treasure, than just your money, that you can support organizations. And so often giving circles will um, encourage members to volunteer or... Raise awareness about this organization, for example, with others that they think might be interested. We also often see giving circle members who learn about an organization through the giving circle, even if it doesn't get the larger grant, become very inspired by it and go on to become direct donors. And a lot of our giving circles encourage members to donate directly to those others that did not receive the larger grant, um, if if they're so moved to right. And and one of the nice things with with the grapevine platform is we make that a lot easier for people because we surface all of those nonprofits and pages where you can easily donate to them right there in in their giving circle homepage. Um, so I think there's a lot of attention to wanting to make sure that those nonprofits still have some support in some capacity, not as much on the feedback part, especially I think a lot of these groups. Um, that don't have an application process where there's been a full discussion and sort of tally and maybe metrics of some kind that they're they're building a case for um, certain nonprofit recipients that they can then go back to to have a feedback conversation with nonprofits so I do think it's an area um, for further exploration you know maybe I'm, I'm sure there is more that could be done for those organizations
0: one of the things that we've done even with groups that do not accept proposals Just because, so the the groups are considering, just because they're not, so just because the grant that particular grant maker is not accepting proposals,
2: yeah,
0: uh, doesn't mean that their groups they're considering have never written one. Yeah. In my experience, most nonprofits have a proposal, right, (laughs) sitting there. Right. So what we've done with some groups, so we maybe the the proposal the giving circle is um, reading is kind of short, or they're only looking at the website or other information. Uh, we give all of their applicants, everybody who was considered, the opportunity to have any proposal, any of the proposals they've written reviewed, mm. um, and it's lots of very good stuff comes out of it. Sometimes we convince them to stop fundraising at all because they're <laughs> wasting, because many of these folks, I'm sure you've seen, are are wasting their time. Yeah, and they don't like for me to come in there and tell them that, but they would have continued to waste their time for much longer if I hadn't. So I'm generally fine with it. Yeah. and often they do come back later and thank me once they've had their successful. Change and they realized that no one was telling them the truth. For a yeah, very long that's
1: time. the the tough feedback is the most valuable because a lot of people do just avoid it. So
0: I think some of my experience in ballet actually was helpful for <laughs> that. Um, <laughs> we one of our larger partnerships was with MIT the Solve program at MIT, mm-hmm. uh, and Alex Myl was a, also a yep. ballet dancer, and she said she once told me that I reminded her of one of her ballet instructors, and he was of course the like meanest, <laughs> like the one that was always telling her what she was doing wrong, right? But you if, if you don't. You have, someone has to tell you what you're doing wrong. Right. I do it with what I call loving language. <laughs> oh, <good. laughs> And I've gotten very good at delivering candid feedback, and we have, we have a process for it, mm-hmm. uh, and it's very thoughtful. I do not recommend to, especially a giving circle made up of beginners
2: mm-hmm. to
0: like go and talk to everybody that declined and just sort of and right. I think it would go very poorly. Yeah. This is difficult stuff. Yeah. I do it independently. I'm not the one to turn them down.
2: Mhm.
0: So in fact, I oftentimes I can be like, "I think the giving circle made a mistake.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I read all the submissions and I think your proposal was better." Mm-hmm. Right? If I actually believe that, I will tell them that, right? Mm-hmm. Um the uh I'd like to talk a little bit about um some of the problems with giving circles for folks who have Stayed with us this long, right? <laughs> uh, many of the Giving Circles that I've interacted with personally have run into troubles at various times.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, one of the original board members of List used to run something called the Giving Circles Fund, uh-huh. which is, as far as I can tell, previous iteration of Grapevine, mm-hmm. which didn't last very long. Right. Um, I forget how long it was around, but it's no longer around. Mm-hmm. The, um, the Giving Circle I've been, that, I, that I cut my teeth on, the Slingshot Fund, Mm-hmm. No longer around. Even though that the organization still exists, the giving circle is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, next gen giving circle has been fun to read with, uh, but they're. I think perhaps now that they're on Grapevine, this may change. But they weren't certainly weren't doing it every month or every quarter, right? That because this was younger next gen members, they needed to constantly find new members. They didn't always have enough people to do a circle, right? right. A lot of those the um, age based ones will will naturally turn over. People yeah. always get older. It yeah. <laughs> always happens. Yeah. Uh, I did some facilitating for um, teen giving circles mm. for a while. Mm-hmm. And those were always faith-based faith, faith based through the temple, mm-hmm. right? So they had the bar mitzvah class that they were replaced with it, right? If you didn't have that, how are you trying to find 13-year-olds to join the giving circle every year would be impossible. Mm-hmm. So these, they, they can, not necessarily long-term sustainable funders. Right. Um, the, they can... They can dissolve quickly, mm-hmm. which can be very. There could be grantees relying on those the, on getting that funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could be a hit uh, every year. Uh, of course, individuals can be flimsy, foundations can be flimsy, corporate grant programs are certainly not something that you can rely on. Uh, but uh, I, I think we can agree that giving circles are not permanent bodies mm-hmm. taking long views of history, right? right. Like for, like the many nonprofits are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so how do we deal with the relative impermanence mm-hmm. of these circles? For, so I think you're doing some of it by relieving the administrative burden. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of them fold because they realize how much work it was. Work it is. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the, but even beyond that, there's still other things that can right. There's the personality disputes is probably the main. Yeah. And there's the real, I don't see how you do that's just going to happen. Right? Right. These things are just going to fold. Yeah. Founda- family foundations for all their problems.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Families don't like break apart that often. Yeah, right. They're still good. Like the money's in the fund. Yeah. It's required to be given out as, right. as difficult as they are approached. Like they're going to be there. And, yeah. and many of those foundations have been there for a long time. And that has allowed institutions like libraries, colleges, universities, mm-hmm. dance halls, opera houses and things to exist. Right. And, and, and that's really prob- that long term view of funding is the only type of funding that would create institutions right. of that sort.
1: Right, which has its own challenges like we were talking about earlier right you set up these institutions to be around forever uh you know they're around for a long time but they're not so flexible and it's hard to break into them and all these other issues are with that so you know all of these these models have their own pros and cons for sure um giving circles yes uh, certainly i think it's easier to spin one up you can start one on grapevine in a couple of minutes it's just as easy for that one to be shut down right um I think you're right. Like for us, a big part of bringing some more uh, sustainability to this movement and growth to it is automating away a lot of the administrative headaches, taking away a lot of those challenges, making it very easy for anyone to set one of these up and do it without needing to set up their own nonprofit and um, track uh, everyone's donations through some complex spreadsheet model they've built and all of this other stuff. Um, but uh, so we've automated away a lot of that. And also, I think the other kind of nice point about that is what we've seen with some of the research is that about every three to four years or so, a giving circle hits a moment of, of, um, uh, riskiness. (laughs) It's kind of at risk. I would say about every three or four years based on the research, which is one natural kind of leadership change tends to happen. This is on average. I'm sure for some it's
0: slingshot lasted for you. No, I did it for four years. It was around before that though.
1: Okay. So, But, you know, there's that moment where, okay, the leaders are getting tired and someone else needs to step up.
0: Having done it for four years myself, I can say, like, some of it was I was too bossy and I noticed myself doing that. But others, it was just sort of I don't. Particularly because we were Mm. um, age-based. I was turning 30 and figured I would let other folks take over. No one did. Like, everybody became, they ended up, like, increasing the, Age limit, limit. Yeah. which I actually think is a smart. Th- if you started a giving circle, right, yeah. and you and when you, you when you were young, and you end up like liking it, it's okay to remove the age limit because yeah.
1: you yeah, grow together, keep it going. Absolutely. Young Presidents
0: Organization did that when they yeah. when they started. It was the, the founders were under thirty, then okay. they turned thirty, and they were like, all right, let's. And now 40. it's young, young presidents are all the way up to <laughs> fifty five years old. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> but they had they was no it was it would have been arbitrary to like when they founded it they had that in common right. They're still sense. all the same age. They have the same thing. It would be very weird to disband right. <laughs> because yeah. of, because of that. Uh, so I think they can. Cha- I think after four years, it would make a lot of sense to think about full fundamental Succession. changes to the structure. Yeah, and I think would be easier it, at a giving circle than at a foundation.
1: I I think it is. I think it's also easier now with frankly with uh, tools like Grapevine. Where before, if you had some complex system of things that you were using to facilitate donations, track money, and you had to spend a week training someone on how to do it and giving them all the access to all the records. That's a lot to go through. Whereas if it's just, Hey, we're going to with one click change you from a member of this group to a leader of this group on the grapevine platform, all the history is there. Everything is turnkey. It's all in one place. It's, we've had a number of giving circles tell us that that has made their transition possible because others weren't so overwhelmed by it and it just made it so much more seamless. So, um, you know, hopefully as we get better, uh, grapevine.org is the first online platform for giving circle. So we're, you know, really trying to be that infrastructure partner for the movement to make this easy for anyone. Um, but I'm sure we'll continue to get better. The movement will continue to grow and these things will be simpler over time. And there's a lot of, um, support around like the programming side too, right? It's not just a technical issue. It's also a people issue. I mean founder dynamics, as you talked about relationships and training, all of that. So there are more and more resources around those types of things too, and how to navigate those, those conversations. So I do hope that we will see more and more longevity within giving circles on average because of all of these advances. And I do think we'll continue to see more and more giving circles. We're launching new ones every week. We have almost a thousand giving circles on our platform. We're in every state across the country. We've moved, what 27 28 million dollars now from sixty thousand people in these groups across the country and as we continue to grow that movement while one giving circle might at some point churn and that's okay those people can take forward those learnings we're seeing more members start their own giving circles after being in one because they're inspired and now they have a different idea of a particular cause or a different community they want to go through this model with so I, I do believe that there's a natural lifetime to some of these, and that's fine, and that the ripple effects of people starting their own new ones, people joining other ones, all of that's valuable, and for a nonprofit, The challenging part of course is like finding the next one. Okay, if this one's gone, now what do I do? And I'm hoping that's another role that Grapevine can really play for those nonprofits that are being really thoughtful and saying, what is our giving circle strategy? How do we get started this year? Maybe you're looking ahead to 24. What, this is a movement and this is growing and we need to have a strategy related to this. So maybe this year our strategy is getting in front of more giving circles, bringing this to our donors, as you mentioned earlier, and encouraging them to join these few that we think are relevant starting to build those relationships. Maybe next year we want to expand upon that and and go further afield with our research and try to find more organizations. Maybe that's just, or giving circles. Maybe that's just part of our annual strategy, right? Because we know some will cycle out, new ones will come in, so we're always looking for new ones. And then finally, maybe at some point we're going to start giving circles ourselves because we can actually leverage this model to build communities of donors to support our work directly. So I think it's, an evolving landscape in summary.
0: <laughs> Do you think that giving circles can be uh, strategic actors? So let's so let's take climate change for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know many donors
2: mm-hmm.
0: who tell me that they are concerned with climate change. And I say, yes, I also would like <laughs> to be alive.
1: <laughs> yes, fair. <laughs> I can right? join you on that.
0: Uh, for my entire life, we've known about climate change. I remember for a while it was called acid rain it was yeah. global warming different. we call it different things but like my whole life I remember one of my first giving experiences was organizing a recycling one of the first recycling drives oh, okay. in, my, in my hometown um, and um, um, it's obviously very difficult to solve a problem like climate change yes um, I, I don't want to make light of it but giving a for instance one of your earlier examples giving a scholarship to someone to attend school is, is terrific but a, a fairly simple form of philanthropy, mm-hmm. right? You're going to find the best student to give them, right? How are you going to solve, how you, with the same, like, how are you going to give a grant to solve climate change? Right, right.
2: right.
0: Or income inequality yeah. or um, lots of, there's lots of intractable issues. Sure. Right, if we wanted to make a list, I'm sure it would be a long list, mm-hmm. right? And there are, and so when I say strategic grant maker, I mean, like, I, I'm going to use my money to purchase. This is some social change I want to make in the world.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Very clearly defined and I want to purchase it. dollars Mm -hmm. right it's not like general giving back or a sense of charity or Mm -hmm. any of those which are all wonderful things but like Mm -hmm. a very strategic approach do Mm -hmm. you think are giving circles a tool for that absolutely so so um, how yes how (laughs) because and and i don't i i I like giving circles Mm -hmm. but i also like to try to see both sides of things sure uh and i think generally everything's neutral Right, so the, you could have a bunch of evil members of a giving circle giving to, they could be giving to Stormfront and the, whatever the clan is called yeah. now, right? In the NRA, and they could be they could be having harm. Mm-hmm. Like,
1: sure, so it's, it's just a, a tool, the, and it it's, needs some direction. Just like right, a hammer, right? I it.
0: can use a hammer to build or destroy. Mm-hmm. It's actually a little bit easier to destroy.
1: <laughs> um, everything. It's always easier to destroy than to build, but um, but yes, I, I do think they can be very strategic. So one. Uh, I see a number of giving circles now inviting in uh, subject matter experts to help inform their giving, help them identify what are the most pressing issues in our community? What are some of the best uh, uh, interventions to solving those issues? So uh, just because the givers themselves don't necessarily have all, all of the knowledge and aren't the experts themselves doesn't mean that they they don't learn from others and don't engage others in that process of deciding where money goes. And I think one of the... Um, Interesting things that I started to see as larger donors are getting involved in this collaborative giving space. So you can think of Blue Meridian or some of these other larger funder collaboratives where people with big dollars are coming together to collaborate and they are pulling in experts to help inform them. And actually the biggest funders, Melinda Gates just launched a collaborative giving fund as well. And her whole point is these are big problems that go beyond even what we can do as, Melinda Gates as the Gates Foundation. We need to collaborate with others. And so we're going to put together a collaborative where we are going to pool our knowledge, our networks, our money, and learn together and make decisions together and fund together. So it, to me, it's the same thing. It's, it's the scale. Sure. I mean, are you putting in you know $100 million or are you putting in $100? This makes a difference. And then how much expertise, how much learning are you injecting into the process? Uh, Those are decisions every giving circle makes, and we have some that keep it very, very lightweight and others that get very deep. Um, But I think it's actually a very effective model for facilitating collaboration and and what I think we need a lot more of in order to actually be impactful and solve some of these big challenges.
0: Um, Awesome. Is there anything else that you would like to uh, say to the audience, to the folks before they... I don't know, go on. They probably have fallen asleep by now. We were talking for a while. No, a lot of wow. people listen at work. Wow. And, and actually, I've been told, like, they could be longer. Right? Oh, wow. Because <laughs> they're at work. It's like, on the background. To... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, for the folks who have listened this long, do you have any, like, final, particularly valuable pieces of wisdom? i like to reward folks who make it all the way to the end.
1: <laughs> um, you know, I just, I think that, to me, giving circles are a great form of this collaborative giving movement that really has a place for everyone. So... Uh, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't end by, by saying that um, I think everyone has a place in this Giving Circle movement, and whether you want to find and join one or start your own, um, we at grapevine.org are, are happy to be a support for you and help you do that. So please do reach out to us, find us there. And if you are a um, funder with larger financial means and you're thinking about how to make an impact... We're also working with more of these foundations to start larger giving circles or even provide matching funds through giving circle networks so that you can get your money out through communities across the country. Um, so you know, there's a place for everyone. And I know we've already talked about the nonprofit involvement and really wanting I, my, my message for nonprofits is just, this is a movement and it's growing. And so you need to have a, a giving circle strategy. And it, you don't need to be getting money from a giving circle this year, but you need to be learning about it and thinking about it and getting a strategy together. Um, I think this really is going to be a much bigger, increasingly large uh, part of philanthropy. And so uh, if that's something that we can help you with as well, we have some resources on the platform. But um, I think uh, you know, just getting involved and starting to follow this movement is a great place to start.
0: One final question. Yes. What if they're in a triangle? <laughs> <laughs> or like a square.
1: We're fine with all shapes
0: Aramas. and sizes. <laughs> any any shape, except we'll all of a, them. I can start a giving
1: octagon if I want. You may, you may. You can start the giving octagon on Great. The dodeca-
0: giving giving dodecahedron. Sure. All right. We, we
1: we will not discriminate. You are all welcome.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much uh, for having me here in your office uh, and for talking to me about giving circles for a good long while.